take our seats everyone Good morning. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Adam and it's so good to have you with us. It's really good to be together this morning and just to worship our awesome God. Uh, I'd like to begin this morning to share something with you um, that's a little bit difficult for me to share with you as an Australian sports lover. I want to do something that I never thought I would do. I want to compliment the All Blacks. Now, if you're not a sports lover at all, the All Blacks are the New Zealand rugby union team. And the truth is, the All Blacks are the most consistently successful sports team of the past 100 plus years. In the past four years, they have a winning percentage of 94%. Since 1903, their winning percentage is around 75%, which means in the last, you know, 114 years, they've won almost 8 of 10 games that they've played. It's an achievement that's been matched by no other elite team in any code. Now that hurt. (laughs) But maybe you're wondering, well, what makes the All Blacks so successful? What's the secret to their sustained success? Now you might suggest that it's because New Zealand are rugby-obsessed, I mean, New Zealanders play a lot of different sports, but rugby is their number one sport. Now, that's part of it, but I think it goes deeper than that. Did you know that before they leave the dressing sheds, after each game that they play, the All Blacks team, which includes some of the biggest names in world rugby, they tidy up after themselves. They literally sweep the sheds, they clean up their mess, and they leave the dressing sheds in the same condition that they found them as when they arrived. Now, why do they do this? Why would they bother cleaning up the sheds when they're going to have professional cleaners come through and do that for them anyway? Well, a number of years ago, one of their coaches introduced a mantra. And this mantra has come to define what it means to be an all-black and it has come to drive what they do. And the mantra was very simple. It was better people make better all-blacks. Better people make better All Blacks. Now this mantra has produced this culture among the All Blacks team which has led to their success. This mantra has produced a culture of humility and service. This mantra has produced a culture where they clean up the dressing sheds after their games. This mantra has produced the culture that is at the heart of their success. Now the reason that I tell you all of this is because this is what beliefs and doctrines and mantras do. They create culture. They create shared mindsets and convictions and actions. Doctrine creates culture. And this is not just true for sports teams, this is true for churches as well. What we believe about God drives what we do. Let me give you an example from the Bible. Colossians 3 verse 13. It says, just as the Lord has forgiven you. Now that's doctrine. That's the good news of the gospel, that in Christ we are forgiven. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. That's culture. That's the way we treat one another. What we believe drives what we do. 
Doctrine creates culture. And the truth is, God cares about both of those things. God cares about what we believe, our doctrine, and God cares about the way we live and the way we treat one another, our culture. And like John said last week, we all tend to lean one way or the other. Some of us love theology and doctrine and definitions and thick books, you know, my kind of people. Others of us love relationships and socialising and long conversations. Not my people. (laughs) Now, I love everybody. (laughs) The truth is, though, God cares about both. God cares about both our doctrine and our culture. And the test of a church is not just its doctrine on paper or its doctrine on its website. The test of a church is also its culture in practice. You see, a church can be theologically rigorous. It can have clear statements of faith. It can have clear definitions. But if its community is marked by gossip and quarrelling and complaining and exclusion and racism and one-upsmanship, then that church is denying its doctrine by its culture. Francis Schaeffer said it this way. He says, if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. Let me show you an extreme example of what I'm talking about. Now, this photo is from the the United States a number of years ago. Now, you can see there men in hoods, which you probably know, are members of the Ku Klux Klan, a, a white supremacist group. Now, the doctrine on the wall is gloriously correct, is it not? Jesus says. But what is that church communicating with its culture? Jesus says, but only if you look like us. Jesus says, but only if you're white. That church is denying its doctrine with its culture. And if the church is going to be powerful and prophetic, magnetic and majestic in our day, then it needs both clear gospel doctrine and compelling gospel culture. Now let me define those two things for us so we're all on the same page before I move on. Clear gospel doctrine is the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. It's the good news that God, through the perfect life, atoning death and life-giving resurrection of Jesus, rescues his people from the wrath of God into the peace with God. And he gives them the promise of his restored creation forever in the future. All to the praise of God's glory. That's gospel doctrine. Gospel culture is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. It's when sinners who have experienced the unending love and grace of God come together and then live that out in their relationships with one another. It's the corporate living out of the biblical message of grace in the relationships, in the tone, in the values, in the priorities of a church community. It's a community of honesty and freedom and gentleness and humility and cheerfulness. And if a church is going to be powerful and prophetic in our day, it needs to embrace the doctrine of divine grace and it needs to exhibit a culture of grace. This is the kind of church that our world Needs. And this is what we're 
talking about in this series that we kicked off last week called What the World Needs Now, the power and the beauty of the church. We're talking about the kind of church that will make a difference in our day, in our unique cultural moment. And the kind of church that we're suggesting will make a difference is a church where the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful. And last week we looked at the first part of that definition, clear gospel doctrine, what we believe about God. Today we're going to look at the second part of that answer, compelling gospel culture, how we live together as the people of God. Now, let me ask you, why does this matter to you? Why are we talking about this and and how does it impact your life? Well, the answer is if you are a part of BPCC, no matter how involved you are or uninvolved you are, no matter how connected you are or disconnected you are, no matter how involved you are, you contribute to the quality of the community at BPCC. In some way, you contribute to the quality of the relationships at BPCC. You might be making a small contribution, you might be making a large contribution, but you are making some sort of contribution to our shared life together. And this matters because the first thing, or one of the first things that outsiders are likely to notice when they come into a church community, is the quality of relationships in that church community. The way a church community loves and serves and forgives and so on. This is the way Jesus said it. Let's get that photo off the screen. This is the way Jesus said it in John 13, verses 34 to 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer again explains it this way. He says, If we are surrounded by a world which no longer believes in the concept of truth, and we are, He says, certainly we cannot expect people to have any interest in whether a man's doctrine is correct or not. But Jesus did give the mark that will arrest the attention of the world, even the attention of the modern man. What is it? The love that true Christians show for each other. See, the quality of our relationships in our community, it really matters. It really matters. It matters to God. And it matters to the world around us. And so the question we have to answer is, well, how can we contribute towards creating a compelling gospel culture at BPCC? How can we contribute towards creating a a culture of grace where we don't just talk about forgiveness, but we see forgiveness? We don't just talk about love, but we see love. Well, to answer this question, I want to take us to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, he writes about a whole lot of different subjects. But right in the middle of the letter, he tells Timothy why he wrote to him. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Paul, writing to this young pastor named Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon. Paul wants to visit Timothy. He says, but I'm writing these things to you so that If I delay, if I don't make it, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy because he wants 
Timothy to know so that he can teach it how we are to behave in the church, the household of God. And this really matters. You see, if we are going to be majestic and magnetic in our generation, we need to know how we are to behave in the household of God. So what I want to do is just take a brief look at this passage and I want to look at the three key phrases that we're given there and what we can learn from them about how we are to live together as the people of God in the church. The first phrase we see there is the household of God. Paul writes, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, the word household means a family. And that's what a church is because God is our Father and he has adopted us into his family where he's adopted children through Christ. Now, this truth has many incredible implications, but here's one. What this truth means is that God loves us in the midst of our mess. You know, my son Knox has been a little bit sick in the last few weeks, which means he's been coughing and spluttering and sneezing all over the place. And the thing about babies is they don't really cover their mouth when they cough or sneeze or splutter. And if they happen to be looking at you right in the face when they sneeze, well, enjoy the spray and enjoy the germs. And what this means is I've been sneezed on and coughed on and spluttered on a lot in the last couple of weeks. But the weird thing is, is I haven't really been too phased by it. In fact, the weird thing is I've actually felt bad for him. He sneezed on me, I'm like, oh, you poor fella, so sick. Now, if I was to pick up one of your children, and they were to sneeze in my face, I'd try and be polite about it, but I'd be pretty grossed out. Because they're not my child's. And there's a difference. If you're a parent, you know that. And see, what this truth is saying, the Bible tells us that we are God's children, which means he loves us in the midst of our mess. And the truth is, we are all messy. And this is why there is no such thing as a perfect church. I mean, if you're looking for a perfect church with perfect relationships where we just float around and everything's easy and nice all the time, then you're going to be looking for a long time. The perfect church doesn't exist because we're all messy. The church is filled with people and people are messy. And God loves us in the midst of our mess. But see, what this truth also tells us is that God loves us enough not to leave us in our mess. You know, when Knox sneezes on me and he's got big boogies hanging out of his nose, I don't just leave him there like that. I hand him to his mother. (laughs) No, of course not. Sometimes. No. I wipe his nose. I clean him up because I love him. You see, God loves us. Our Heavenly Father loves us too much to leave us in our mess. And what this means is when we become part of God's family, We need to learn the standards of our new family. In the language of Paul, we need to learn how to behave in the household of God. Now, what does that mean? How do we actually do that? Well, in Ephesians 5 verse 1, the Apostle Paul also writing, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. See, the standard in the family of God is God himself. And we see what God is most clearly like in Jesus. 
In fact, in John 14, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Which means if we want to know how to behave in the household of God, we look at Jesus. We learn from Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' example. And few passages in the Bible, I think, say it better than Jesus' Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to these words of Jesus with fresh ears. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now these verses set the relational tone for God's family. Now let's be honest, this sounds so completely different to anything we've ever experienced before. In fact, to highlight how different this is to anything we've experienced, let me just flip the Beatitudes on their head for for a moment. Let me share the Beatitudes, or we might call anti-Beatitudes, the opposite Beatitudes. They might say something like this, Blessed are the entitled, for they get their way. Blessed are the carefree, for they are comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they win. Blessed are the self-righteous, for they need nothing. Blessed are the vengeful, for they will be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they get in the last word. Blessed are the winners, for they get their way. Doesn't that sound more like the communities that we're used to? Doesn't that sound more like the natural impulses of our own hearts? But you see, the household of God, the church of Jesus Christ is to be different. Because the household of God is where people begin to behave in a new way. And the household of God is where we begin to treat one another as Jesus has treated us. We welcome one another because Jesus has welcomed us. We accept one another because Jesus has accepted us. We pray for one another because Jesus has prayed for us. We forgive one another because Jesus has forgiven us. We bear one another's burdens in real, hard, practical ways because Jesus has borne our burdens in real, hard, practical ways. We humbly serve one another because Jesus has served us. We speak truth in love to one another because Jesus speaks truth to us. We treat one another as Jesus has treated us. We create a safe, gentle, Christ-like community. And friends, it begins with you. It begins with the person sitting in your seat. See, these aren't things that you demand of other people. These are things that you become for other people. You don't walk into a church community and say, well, no one has welcomed me and Jesus said we should welcome one another. You say, who can I welcome? Because Christ has welcomed me. And when we do that, we create a culture that is compelling to the watching world. The household of God is where we treat one another as Jesus has treated us. 
The second phrase we see there is the church of the living God. That's what Paul says there at the end there. He says, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now the word church means assembly or gathering of people. But this is not just any gathering of people. This isn't like a crowd at a sports event or a concert. This is the gathering where God makes his home. This is the gathering where the living God dwells. In other words, God manifests his presence in the world through the local church. Think about that. Now, again, this truth has many incredible implications, but here's one for you and I. Reading the Bible and hearing the Bible taught on your own, alone, is a good thing. Singing praises to God on your own, alone, is a good thing. Hearing the Word of God taught and proclaimed together with the family of God is even better. Singing praises to God with your fellow brothers and sisters is even better. Martin Luther once said something that I resonate with. Maybe you do as well. Look at what he wrote. He says, At home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigour in me. But in the church, where the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. And this is why the Bible is so adamant about believers meeting together. You've probably heard this passage in Hebrews 10 where the writer says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, to watch a church service on TV or online, it's not enough. The children of God need to gather with the family of God so that we can praise the living God. Because the church is where the living God dwells. And this is why one of the ways that we contribute towards creating a compelling gospel culture is we devote ourselves to the gathering of God's people. We treat Jesus as more than just a garnish for our busy lives. We treat the church as more than just an optional extra for our weekends when we feel like it. Because the church is where the living God dwells and who doesn't want to be a part of that? And so maybe some of us need to take some steps in 2018, to change our attitude to the gathering of God's people. Maybe some of us need to adjust our attitude to the Sunday gathering. Maybe some of us need to make space in our schedules so that we can meet with other believers in a growth group. Maybe some of us need to just hang around after services to build relationships. Maybe some of us need to come early to services so that we can welcome new people and just give them a smile and a handshake. Maybe some of us need to start praying for our brothers and sisters. Start giving. Start serving. Start just intentionally encouraging one another. Hey, I saw you you did that the other day and that really served me. That really blessed me. Thank you for what you do. I'm not sure what changes you need to make this year, but we can all take steps to devote ourselves to the church of the living God. The third and final phrase that we see there is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, this is architectural language. A pillar holds something up. You can see there. And a buttress supports or strengthens something. 
And Paul says there in verse 15 that the church is to hold up and to strengthen or support the truth. Now what does he mean by the truth? Well he goes on to define it in verse 16. He says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Talking about Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now this is a kind of poetic expression of the gospel message. And Paul's point here is that a biblical church holds up the gospel for everyone to hear and see. And a biblical church supports and strengthens the truth of the gospel. Now how do we do that? The first one, we're called to be a pillar, lifting up high the truth of the gospel. You know, there's lots of things that we as a church could talk about and do, lots of good things, but the one thing that we must share and declare and promote is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. You know those bulletin boards that they have at grocery um, stores sometimes? I don't know if they really have them anymore. I've got one at my local IGA. You know, they've got all the different ads on there for units to rent and lost pets and all of those kind of things. That's not what the church is meant to be like. The church is not meant to be driven by all these different agendas that compete for attention. The church is to be a pillar holding up Jesus to the watching world. You see, BPCC is here not to promote BPCC. We're here to promote Jesus. We're not the ones on top of the pillar. Jesus is. And we exist for the glory of Jesus. We're a pillar. And this is reflected in our vision statement. Who we're striving to be as a church. Striving to be a gospel-centred church seeking to make and grow disciples of Jesus Christ for the good of our community and the glory of God. That's what we want to do. That's who we want to be. We want to make Jesus glorious and famous in our community. We're also called to be a buttress, strengthening and supporting the gospel. Now maybe you're wondering, well, why does the gospel message about Jesus, why does it even need strengthening? Why does it even need support? Well, the answer is because when many people hear the gospel, it doesn't really sound strong to them. It doesn't really sound important or, or even relevant. And this is why many people, many people you know, who have heard the message about Jesus, but their lives are devoted to other things. Things that they think will give them a better future, a better body, a better self-image, more toys, more holidays, whatever it is. This is what the way Ray Ortland says about this. He says, such distractions, better body, better self-image, more toys, more holidays, they feel like the key to a better future. Well, the gospel feels like an itty-bitty lifestyle option for the weekend among those with a religious bent. He says, that's where the buttress comes in. See, a church, listen to what he says, a church can offer living and palpable proof that the gospel makes a real difference for real people living in the real world. See, the church strengthens and supports the gospel by displaying evidence of the gospel's power in changed lives. If you're a Christian, you have a story of the difference that Jesus has made and is making in your life. I was reading an article this week by Simon Smart. Simon works for the Centre for Public Christianity in Australia and he wrote an article called Speaking as a Christian Outsider. 
it was all about how we can commend the Christian faith to our society today. And one of the ways that he suggests we can do this is to tell stories of changed lives. He says, remember that while you may be an outsider, he's talking about to the dominant culture, which we are, he says, you still have great stories to tell. Stories of radically transformed lives, perhaps your own. Stories of the difference faith makes in both the joys and sorrows of life. See, the church strengthens and supports the message of Jesus when we declare and tell about what Jesus has done in our lives. This is actually why we love to share the stories of grace. You know those video testimonies that we often play on the screen? Part of the reason we do that is because we want people to see and know how Jesus has changed and is changing us. And as we do that, we strengthen and support the gospel. So let me ask you as I close, do you understand the significance and the grandeur of the church? The church, our church, here in Brisbane, Australia, is the household of God. The church of the living God and a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is where weary sinners are invited into the family of God. Where the living God dwells in all of his might and mercy. Where the truth of the gospel is displayed and promoted. And where we treat one another as Jesus has treated us for the glory of God. And every single one of us has a part to play. So let me ask you, what part are you playing? If we will embrace what God is calling us to, then we will become a church that, to borrow from John Piper, is God-exalting, Christ-admiring, Spirit-filled, Bible-enjoying, grace-preaching, convenience-defying, cross-embracing, risk-taking, selfishness-crucifying, gossip-silencing, prayer-saturated, laughter-filled, future-thinking, outward-reaching and beautifully human congregation where the undeserving can thrive. Now, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And that's what God is calling us to. And every single one of us has a part to play. What are we waiting for? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have saved us, not just to an individual faith, Lord, but you have saved us into your household, into your community. And Lord, you have given us the privilege to serve you, to love one another, so that the watching world might see how good and glorious you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing this song as a prayer.